So today we have to cover book three of uh, Aristotle's Politics. Thing is, book three is almost impossible to cover because it's there's so much that happens in book three. Um, so I'll refer you again to the outline that I posted. Um, it, it gives you a sort of general map of what goes on in the individual chapters of the of the book. Um, I'm going to very quickly outline what I think happens. So in chapters one through five, <clears throat> Aristotle gives a definition of the citizen. Um, and then in chapters six through 10, he outlines a division and definition of the different types of regimes. And he gives six types of regimes. Then um, he, uh, in book, in chapter 11, there is a defense, as it were, a consideration and defense of uh, the possibility of large deliberative um, sort of assemblies uh, making decisions. And there's a defense of collective decision-making um, in chapter 11. Chapters 12 through 17 are a consideration of monarchy. Um, and when monarchy counts as a type of regime and when it doesn't, when it's appropriate and when it isn't, that sort of thing. And then that ends, chapter 17 and chapter 18, with a, with a, a consideration of what he thinks is the best regime. So a lot happens in book three. Um, and, but there are three, the, the first part of the book is not that controversial, but the, the latter half of the book, um, gives rise to several controversies. And so those that's what I want to consider today. And then one of those controversies will flow over into books seven and eight, um, and we'll discuss it on Thursday. The first controversy is about Aristotle's attitude towards democracy, um, which and that controversy is centered in chapter 11. Second uh, controversy is about Aristotle's attitude towards monarchy. Um, and that is centered in books 12 through, or chapters 12 through 17. And then finally, there's a third controversy, which is just about what Aristotle's best regime actually amounts to. That's um, a controversy that, as I said, spills over into books seven and eight. And that controversy we will talk about on Thursday. So for today, I want to talk about his attitude toward democracy and his attitude towards monarchy. Um, but in order to talk intelligently about those, I think it's important to go back to something he says at the beginning of book two. Um, and so I actually want to go back and, and start there before moving forward. So right at the opening of book two, Aristotle says that the aim of the politics as a book is to figure out what is the most effective political koinonia, community or association, for those capable of living most as one would wish. And um, so we'll come back to that articulation of the, the, the sort of aim of the book as a whole. The idea is basically like how do, like what's, what political community um, is best for those who are capable of living as they wish. Um, and the first task, the task that he actually undertakes in book two, is to examine the different forms of government that have a good reputation. 
to see if any of them are up to snuff, basically. And so he considers cities that are said to be well-governed, so Sparta, Crete, Carthage, and he considers regimes that are merely spoken of um, by some people, but that he says are, you know, are thought to be beautifully set up. So this is where his consideration of Plato comes in, and this is where his discussion of these other two fellows, uh, Phaleas and Hippodamus, uh, come in. And the first question that he asks about these regimes is, of those things that can be shared or held in common, how many should be? Right. That's his sort of opening question about figuring out what the best political community would look like. And I think it's that's a crucial first question for him. He says, look, the city is a political community. That means it's a form of sharing. So the question is, what do we share in a political community? And how do we go about sharing it? All of Aristotle's criticisms of Plato center on that question. Or I guess it's two questions, but center on those questions about sharing. So uh, according to Aristotle, Socrates in the Republic seems to identify sharing with sameness, right? with identity. Um, so that's why uh, he overemphasizes the unity of the city, right? because that unity implies the identity of all of its members. Right? All of the, the guardians are interchangeable, basically. They, they all have the same... Um, thoughts, the same concerns, the same family, the same property, etc. They're they're interchangeable. And Aristotle is keen to differentiate himself from Plato on this mark because he says, uh, so this is at twelve sixty three B thirty five. He says harmony is not the same thing as unison, right? And rhythm is not the same thing as a single metrical foot. He's interested in a sort of coherence, a, a sort of um, um, wholeness that would come from differentiation and diversity. Okay. Second criticism of Plato is that, um, and Aristotle agrees with this, sharing implies some sort of affection. And so Aristotle says, like, affection is really important for keeping the city together. But affection can't be just a uniform sort of affection for each and every one of your fellow citizens. Um, so affection, basically, Aristotle says, can't be spread around without ceasing to be affection. So that's at 1262b8, right? You can't love everyone the way you love your mom and dad. And if you try to love everyone the way you love your mom and dad or the way you love your kid, that just means that nobody gets it, right? Um, so Aristotle is, affirms special bonds, right? That, you know, you're going to feel special af affection for somebody. And what matters is that is not that everyone feels the same affection for everyone else in the city, but that the city is knit together out of these overlapping bonds of special affection. The third criticism of Plato is a more general one. 
Um, and this is something that he carries over to to his criticism of the other the other thinkers of politics, and and just sort of expresses, I think, um, Aristotle's point of view well. Uh, so he says this at this is at twelve sixty three a fifteen. He says, "Look, living together and sharing things is difficult in all human circumstances. Right? <laughs> it's just there's no way to make." living together and sharing things into sort of an easy, joyous activity all the time. It's always going to be hard. Um, so this lies behind Aristotle's uh, discussion of property, right? He thinks that property ought to be held privately in general, but with provision for shared or common use in certain circumstances, because he just thinks, you know, sharing things with other people is just hard, and you don't want to you don't want to make it the the thing that people have to do all the time. Because if they have to do it all the time, you're gonna you're gonna run into problems, right? He has that little uh, thing about how you know travelers, you know, if you're on, you know, Aristotle obviously went on road trips when he was young, right? And and everybody knows if you've been on a road trip, you get really sick and tired of the people that you have to you know share the car with all the time. Right. So uh, travelers fall out with one another. Um, and that that's a sign that, you know, we, we need we need our space. We need to be able to to be alone and get away from people. And that that's part of um, that's not antithetical to a community. That's an important part of building a healthy community is that we can we can get away from one another. So. That's going to be important later on. So there's this, this is going to be sort of the orienting question. If, if for Aristotle, the question is, you know, um, what do we share in a political community and how do we do it? How do we come up with institutions within which we can share what we have to share well? So I'm going to put that aside for one second. Um, the second thing I want to say, and this will take us directly into book three, is I want to say something about Aristotle's method in general. Um, because you may have noticed Aristotle has a kind of a tricky way of writing, and it can be hard to figure out how to read him all the time. Um, he's certainly not someone, <laughs> um, he's not someone who tells you, look, here's my thesis. Um, here's my argument for my thesis. Here are some objections that you might raise to my thesis. And here's why I don't think those objections hold. He doesn't do that at all. Um, in fact, he often backs into everything. He considers all of the objections. Um, and then out of the objections, eventually, sort of in an aside, he'll mention what his thesis is. Um, and then he'll go on to the next topic. Um, so I just want to say something about Aristotle's method um, more generally because I think I'm hoping it'll be helpful for reading him. Um, and I want to make I want to make three observations about. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking in particular of his discussion at the beginning of Book Three of the Citizen. Right, he's trying to he's spending these first five chapters of the book trying to define a term. Right, that's that's what he's aiming for. Like how do we, how are we going to define this concept of the citizen? And I just want to make three observations about what he does in those opening um, chapters. <clears throat> so first of all, defining a, a, a term like citizen for Aristotle um, 
does not mean just cataloging how people use the term. Um, for Aristotle, normativity is embedded um, in language. So I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Um, names are norms for Aristotle. That means there's no clear fact value distinction in Aristotle. Um, and there's no you know, absolute separation between is and ought. That is, talking now about his discussion of citizenship, there's no way to say what a citizen is without saying what a citizen should be. Okay. Um, or without implying who should or shouldn't be a citizen. Okay. So Aristotle's sort of definition of citizenship is that, you know, citizens are those who are capable of partaking in ruling, sharing in ruling offices uh, in the city. And that's and shot through with normativity, right? Um, there's like, there have to be all sorts of judgments made about who ought to be a citizen. Um, and you can't, you can't just go around and say, well, you know, citizens are those with, you know, this particular status, because the, the, the status is itself a, no, a moral claim on being able to rule or being able to share in rule. The second observation is that, um, so if there's normativity embedded in the concept, in the name itself, there's also con normative confusion and conflict embedded in that normativity. That is, people disagree about um, the proper extension and intention of a term like citizen. Um, so just to break it down, so if a citizen is someone who's capable of partaking in ruling, well, there's going to be lots of possibility, room for conflict in this. So someone who rules badly is not, for that reason, not a ruler, right? We don't want to, we don't want to make it that way. We don't want to say, well, only someone who rules well counts as a ruler. Um, but we do want to say that someone who rules badly maybe shouldn't be a ruler. Right? And we do want to say that there, there might be a threshold below which, you know, failure to perform ruling does make one not a ruler, right? We might say, well, that person's not really a ruler because they're, they're doing such a bad job of it that they, they're not really um, doing it at all. But um, not being a ruler even not being a ruler at all doesn't necessarily mean that you have no role at all in the city, right? And so that means for Aristotle, there's going to be a differentiation. Like not everyone who is has a role in the city is a citizen, right? Because not all of them are going to participate in ruling, right? Being, being not a ruler, being not a citizen, and that means not being a part of the city doesn't mean you have no role in the city. Um, and doesn't mean you're completely set, cut off from the city and separate. So all, all of these issues are going to be controversial ones. Um, and there's going, to be, there's going to be conflict around all of them. But Aristotle thinks that conflict is just built into the very act of defining the term in the first place.
So part a big part of what Aristotle does then is he wants to try to clarify uh, terms. That is, clarify how we use them, but that also means clarify how we should use them, right? Um, he wants to analyze them and try to try to break them apart into their into their constitutive meanings. And he thinks that that's crucial for seeing political matters clearly, um, and hence for acting intelligently in the political sphere. But all of that clarification that he undertakes, so five chapters clarifying what a citizen is, right? often doesn't have an immediate and obvious payoff in terms of, well, here's what you should do, right? So Aristotle does not generally say, here's how the city should be ordered, here's how you should rule, etc. right? He doesn't even say, here's exactly who should be citizens, right? Um, rather, he tries to clarify the concept. That clarification will have practical implications down the line, but it doesn't issue in straightforward marching error or orders about who should and should not be a citizen um, or what should or should not be done in a particular circumstance. We'll come back to that um, in other contexts um, and especially on Thursday because, well, not just on Thursday, I guess, but um, because the particularity of the situation in which you're making judgments is really important for Aristotle. And different situations are going to call for very, very different judgments. And so this, all of this clarificatory stuff that he does is about honing political intelligence, which will result in good decisions, but Aristotle doesn't say what decisions to take um, because that like any sort of prescriptions that he would give would be generic. Um, and good decision-making is not generic. So we'll come back to, we'll come back to that in the future. Okay. So those are the two preliminaries sort of out of the way about what Aristotle's project is and sort of the method by which he goes about things. So now we can talk about our two controversies. Um, the one about democracy and the one about monarchy. So I just want to present the controversies straightforwardly, um, and then and then I'll talk about how I think they ought to be resolved. So the conflict about democracy, and this is something you'll find in secondary literature. Um, you know, if you read around about Aristotle's politics and you read around about Aristotle's attitude about democracy, you'll find this controversy, you'll find people saying different things or, or noting that there's an unclarity here because, so on the one hand, Aristotle says that only those who are relieved of necessary work are capable of the virtue appropriate of citizens. So that's in book three, chapter five, right? So that seems to be, in, you know, he has a very restrictive notion of who um, is capable of virtue and therefore who is capable of being a citizen, right? That seems to be a fairly anti-democratic, quite elitist um, claim. But second, on the other hand, he also argues, this is in book three, chapter 11, that the multitude, the plethos, may be a better judge of some matters than any individual, 
And so people read chapter 11 and they're like, oh, this looks like a defense of democracy. But he has this other very elitist um, attitude about that seems to exclude anybody who doesn't have virtue. So you have you have a an emphasis upon the virtue of an individual in the one hand, and you have this defense of the possibility, at least, of a virtue of a multitude on the other hand. So how do you square those two things? So that's the controversy about democracy. Second is this controversy about monarchy, and that um, goes like like this. On the one hand, uh, Aristotle writes, this is at uh, 1282b1, which is in chapter 11, he says, laws rightly laid down ought to have authority. Right? So Aristotle seems to be a proponent of the rule of law. But on the other hand, um, later in the book, uh, he says that there's only one form of kingship that is a separate regime, he argues, um, and that um, that one form of kinship or kingship is um, pambasileia. That means someone who's king over all. Um, and pambasileia is a regime in which one person or a family is so surpassing in virtue as to exceed everyone else in the city. So that's 1288A15 through 20. And he seems to say that that's an appropriate thing. If that is, if that's true, if there is one person or one family who's so excessive in virtue as to outshine everyone, then they ought to be king over all things for life, right? Um, so um, is he in favor of the rule of law or is he in favor of this like, sort of absolute monarch who has authority over all things. So I want to resolve these. These are very old uh, controversies in Aristotle interpretation. And I want to resolve them in the next 20 minutes or so. Okay. Um, so, and I think there are two ways, or, or there are two thoughts that go a long way towards resolving all of this. Um, first of all, uh, regarding monarchy, I think this is a general statement about book three. I think book three is overall concerned to sort out politike from basilike, right? So you remember at the beginning of book one, Aristotle introduced, like he said, there are these four types of rule, right? There's despotike, oikonomike, politike, and basilike. And Plato identifies them all and thinks that it's only a matter of numbers, but he wants to differentiate them. And so in book one, he deals with um, despotike, mastery over slaves, and oikonomike, household management. And he says, well, these are sub-political types of rule. They're appropriate for in the household, but they're not part of the city. Um, so that left these other two, politike and basilike. I think book three is about sorting those two out. And the sorting out of basilike and, and uh, uh, politike leads to the conclusion, I think, that basilike is elevated above politike as a sort of quasi-divine upper limit to human possibility, right? If there is some one person or one family who's so surpassing everyone else in virtue, 
that they are like a god amongst men, then they ought to be obeyed willingly by everyone, right? That is, kingship is sort of separated out as a super political form of rule that's appropriate only for these very special circumstances. And I, th I we'll come back to that a little bit. We'll discuss that a little bit more on Thursday. Um, but that means then that the rest of book three uh, is concerned with politique proper. Well, politique proper is therefore going to involve a properly political situation in which there are a multitude of people who are sharing in rule. Even if that multitude is a rather small multitude, right? Um, if kingship is sorted out, uh, separated out as a special form of rule that's appropriate for certain special circumstances, then in all other circumstances, the form of rule in the city that is appropriate is politique. And politique is rule that is shared amongst equals, right? Equals, equally free human beings. And that means every city contains a multitude of rulers, okay? Now, it's important to say that this multitude is not the same thing for Aristotle as the demos, okay? The demos, the people, is a special category, okay? The demos in ancient Greek, the people, is the poor many, right? And this comes into Aristotle's definition of democracy. Democracy is the rule by the poor many, not just by the majority, but by the poor many. What, what distinguishes the demos, the poor many, is that they are unknown as individuals. Um, they are, they're nobodies, right? They can only participate in politics en masse, okay? Hence, democratia, democracy, is the kratos of the demos. That is, it's the regime in which this mass of unknown poor people holds sway, that is Kratos, um, over all of the, you know, somebodies, all of the mucky mucks who stand out from the crowd, all of the, you know, trained speakers, the office holders, the notables, right? Everybody who's known and counts as an individual um, is under the sway of the demos, right? That's Aristotle's democracy. So this, I think, helps clarify things because you can keep the nobodies, the demos, out of the ecclesia, out of the assembly, while still giving the ecclesia broad authority over officials. And you can also include the nobodies in the assembly. You can let them come. You can even pay them to come but you might restrict that body's authority in all sorts of ways. Right? So what I want to do here is I want to, I want to sort out this question of democracy from this question of collective decision-making, right? They're not identical 
in Aristotle. Um, because for according to Aristotle, something like an ecclesia, something like an assembly of citizens is probably going to be part of most any government, right? In which governors and governed are free and equal citizens. Right? There's going to be something like that. Um, but that doesn't, the presence of that, the presence of an assembly of citizens does not make the regime into a democracy. Therefore, so I think what Aristotle's actual position is, is something like this. Democracy, um, in which the demos has sway en masse, is a bad regime. Because the demos does not share rule with the notables. But on the other side, oligarchy, in which the notables do not share rule with a capable demos, is also a bad regime. Right? And any good political regime at all, in any one of them, a multitude of citizens in assembly is going to have some authority to elect and review officers. That's because just what it is to be a regime, what it is to be a politeia, is to be an arrangement of ruling offices, right? A, a sharing of authority. And realistically, a sharing of authority, any sharing of authority is going to involve some sort of assembly of citizens. Right. So then I want to talk now that raises a few other questions. So what I want to do is, uh, and this will be the last, the last thing I do is, is talk a little bit. Now I want to return to this question about what is shared uh, in a good politeia um, and how it is shared. Um, so I'm going to bring together a number of claims that Aristotle makes. Um, first of all, uh, early in book three, in his discussion of the citizen, Aristotle says that the virtue of ruling is phronesis um, or intelligence. Right? Um, so we encountered that book, that word uh, in Plato, um, Plato, for Plato, or for Socrates in, in the Republic, in Book 7 of the Republic, uh, phronesis is the, the eye of the soul, right? That by which you apprehend the truth or the appearance of things. So in that account, phronesis is fundamentally something theoretical. It's something by which we behold the world right, um, as it is, either in its seeming or in its being. In Aristotle, though, um, intelligence is fundamentally practical. Um, phronesis is the virtue of, of ruling in particular, right? Um, so that's at 1277b28. The virtue of citizens, on the other hand, is true opinion, he says. Um, that is, what he says, knowing the rule of free persons from both sides, both from the ruling side and from the being ruled side. That's um, at 1277B17 and again at B29. So 
What I think that means, if you put these things together, so um, to share in rule means to share in intelligence. Um, that's, or at least to share in a good rule, right? To share rule well is to share intelligence, right? Because that's the virtue of ruling, right? Um, so if that's true, then the politeia or the regime, if it's a decent regime, is it's an institutional arrangement that allows intelligence to show itself in different ways and to be manifest in decisions, right? So I said for Aristotle, uh, phronesis is a, is a, like it's a fundamentally a practical sort of intelligence, right? In particular, it's the power of decision making, right? Of seeing the right thing to do, right? In a particular circumstance. So another way of saying what I said just now about the politeia is that therefore, you know, a politeia is therefore, it's an arrangement of modes of decision-making. And if it's done well, then it's, it's an arrangement that allows decisions to be well-made. Okay. So that's what we, so in any politeia, what we do is we share decision-making. Right, that's what it means. And if and if the politeia is a good one, then we share decision making well, such that good decisions are made, and hence intelligence manifests itself in our decisions collectively. Right. So this then comes back to like like I said at the beginning, like Aristotle doesn't think that sharing means all of us doing the same thing, uh, right? He, he thinks that sharing can be this very differentiated um, thing, right? Um, and I think that shows up in his discussion of collective uh, deliberation and decision-making. So one of the things that he says in chapter 11 is that a virtuous person is able on their own to decide and judge as well as most people are only able to together. So he says that at uh, 1281B, 10 through 15. That is, um, for most of us, most of the time, we are better decision makers if we deliberate with other people about what decision to make. What makes someone a particularly virtuous decision maker, a really good decision maker, is that they can do on their own, all by themselves, what most of us need other people to do, deliberate and decide well, okay? Um, and so for Aristotle, um, a good constitution, a good regime, is going to have different venues of decision-making that are going to allow all citizens to participate in good decision-making in a way that is appropriate to them, right? So those who need to deliberate with others um, in order to make good decisions 
well, there's going to be a venue for them to deliberate with one another and, and, and come to good decisions together. Those who are capable of making good decisions on their own, well, there will be offices that will allow them to take good decisions, um, you know, on their own, solo, right? Um, and that if that is, if, if the, those offices and venues are well arranged, then the entire city will benefit from the good decisions that are made in all of those different venues. And we will all, all of the citizens will share in that um, collective intelligence of the city itself. Okay. There's another one more last wrinkle to this, uh, which is more of a puzzle. Um, like, I think it's a, it's a very interesting set of claims that Aristotle makes. Um, and I don't always know what to do with them. Um, one of the things that are, another thing that Aristotle says in book in chapter 11 is that um, good rulers are not like expert makers, um, which is a, it, it, this is a, seems to be a distinction also between Aristotle and Socrates, right? Socrates is constantly making analogies to the arts um, and comparing, you know, talking about shoemakers and, and, and so forth. Um, and Aristotle says, look, good rulers are not like shoemakers um, because it's the user, not the maker, who is the best judge of things. Okay, so this is this is a very important claim for Aristotle. Uh, it's a 1282a 15 through 25. He makes this argument. So, like, who do you turn to to judge whether a flute is well made? Well, you don't turn to the flute maker. You turn to the flute player. It's the flute player who decides whether or not a flute is well made. Who decides whether medicine is, um, you know, being delivered well? Well, it's the patient. It's not the doctor right? Um, the tenant is the judge of whether the house is well-made, not the builder, right? Um, and the, the, the diner is the judge of whether the meal is well-cooked, not the cook, right? Aristotle thinks that the, you know, the user of things is the, is the best judge of the quality of things. And he thinks this applies to collective decision-making or to, you know, to the city's intelligence as well. So um, that, and it's hard to know exactly what that means, but this is part of his argument for the possibility of collective deliberations, that in some important sense, the citizens as a whole are the users of um, the city. Um, and therefore, it is they um, who, as users of the laws, of user as users of you know the city as a whole, um, that are the best judge of whether things are being done well or not. Um, so there, this is a this is a an interesting wrinkle. I don't always know what to do with it, but for Aristotle, there's an important sense in which. Um, it's not the lawmaker who is the expert, or or at least we shouldn't we should not think of expertise as being um, a political expertise as being a sort of specialized form of maker's knowledge. 
um, but rather it is the user, the, the, the consumer of the laws um, who, is the, who is the best judge of them. We'll, we'll hopefully get a chance to talk about that more at another time.